we begin our City Club of Idaho Falls broadcast a little early due to the length of tonight's forum as we present the reception for the 2019 recipient of the John D. Hansen Civility Award, the Honorable Jim Jones, former Chief Justice of the Idaho Supreme Court and Idaho Attorney General, Thursday, February 21st at the Idaho Falls University Place Benyon Building. Today we are honoring a number of people. The John D. Hansen Award for Public Service and Civility. Many of you knew John. He's a friend, a, a colleague, neighbor, state senator, and knew the outstanding and sterling qualities of his nature. You could always know that John would treat anyone fairly. He would listen. He would ponder. And when he delivered his decision about things, it would always be in a patient and very civil manner. He was one of the founding um, board members of the City Club. And of course, as friends and being close to John when he passed, we all felt very, very sad about it. And for him and for his family, for his wife, Michelle, we all know. But one day at City Club board meeting, we decided that maybe there was a way that we could honor these qualities of John that we all knew in our hearts and maybe let it be known to some of other people who may not have been as close with John. I'm sure that many of you know John, but there are some people here that are, are new to Idaho Falls and didn't have the honor of knowing him. So we decided what better way to honor this good man than to keep a legacy of his going and honor the people in our area and in our state who showed what John showed. Dignity, honor, civility, many things. We couldn't put them all on a plaque, so we stopped for service and, and civility. Last year was our first year to uh, honor the recipients, and as uh, Jerry said, three of them are here in the audience today. They were Idaho public school teachers. So who, who, who more can give service, and who has to be civil? So we commend them again. This year, when it was time for us to think about who would be our honoree, we were at a board meeting, and as the topic was introduced, one name came out, and after that there was silence and agreement unanimously that the person who would honor, we would honor with this award, the person who embodied all the qualities of John was, of course, the Honorable Jim Jones. I know many of you know him, and he's spoken here before. His resume is long and varied. He's from Jerome, a farm family, true Idaho. His first uh, 12 years, he attended public schools in Idaho, then gaining his uh, law degree from Northwestern. He also, during a very troubled time, served as <clears throat> a soldier in Vietnam, where he was wounded and was decorated. So that is, that is something to commend. After Vietnam, he also practiced law. He served on the staff of Senator Lim Jordan and was eventually elected Attorney General of Idaho, 
which I understand as soon as he was elected, he was thrown into that epic struggle between the state of Idaho and the Idaho Power Company. And it took a few years to wave through that with all uh, the complications, but it was led by the strength and, and patience and articulateness of Jim Jones. After being Attorney General, he was elected to the Idaho Supreme Court, and eventually he served as Chief Justice. Since his retirement, I think that many of the true qualities of this gentleman have been coming to the forefront even more forcibly. Humanity should be judged by the way we treat the least of those among us. How do we give of ourselves to help those who don't have what we have, who would like to strive for it? And Judge Jones has dedicated many hours in speaking and writing to talk about the plight of refugees and those in our society who do not have what we, what we have. That is a, a true humanitarian there. When we think of the giants of Idaho uh, government, we think of people like Bob Smiley, I'm dating myself there, uh, Senator Jordan, Senator McClure, Senator Frank Church, and of course Cecil Andrus. But we do have to add one more name to that list of giants, and that is Jim Jones. Our coll my colleague on the City Club board, Tim Hopkins, described uh, Judge Jones as a man for all seasons. I assume he was referring to that uh, story about Sir Robert Moore, who dedicated, who actually gave up his life for his values. He could not be changed. Well, that's hearkening back to the Middle Ages, but when I thought about it, there are some qualities of the Middle Ages that we will apply to Jim Jones. As well as a man for all season, he is a man who has grace and nobility. So Judge Jones, on behalf of the City Club, You know, I, I wasn't sure who was being described there for a while. <laughs> I, I am really thankful and humbled and uh, pleased and everything else for all of those kind words. Um, you know, it's great to be here uh, to the City Club to um, <clears throat> share what I hope is some wisdom, but also to get the award uh, for civility uh, that you've named in honor of John Hansen. You may not know this, but I was John's official legal counsel for four years. During his four, first four years in the legislature, I, of course, was the person charged with giving legal advice to the legislature. I have to tell you, John probably knew as much or more than I did, but, you know, it was my official title. But he was in the same mold as the rest of the Hanson family. 
a good, solid uh, American, a good, solid, patriotic Idahoan, somebody who believed in reason and civility and practiced it as a steelheader in the state legislature, uh, and to have an honor uh, bearing his name is really an honor in my book, so I, I very much thank you. Um, <clears throat> you know, I suppose maybe it had something to do with growing up in Jerome County. Um, I notice your president uh, claims to have been uh, born and raised in Jerome. I came from the east side of the county <clears throat> where we were looked down upon as a bunch of farmers and stuff, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, my village of Eden uh, with 456 people produced some pretty good people. You may read about it in a column that I am sending out uh, as part of the commemoration of Idaho Day, which is March 4th, which of course you have Lyndon Bateman to thank for because he pushed that legislation. And I'm paying a little bit of homage to the village of Eden. And uh, <clears throat> so you'll have to read that column. Um, I have been doing a little bit of writing. Uh, I write a column. If you're interested, it is uh, JJ commentator.com. <clears throat> it's not commentator. <clears throat> you have to put in the spelling of common, C-O-M-M-O-N, tater, just a kid from the tater state. So anyway, uh, I've written a book. Uh, it's probably going to be published uh, in the next couple of months. It's called Vietnam can't get you out of my mind. It talks about my uh, wartime experiences and how it shaped my life ever since. I'm not going to be very um, commercial and tell you that it's going to be on Amazon, but it will be. <laughs> I may be down here to sign copies of the same. Um, you know, I spent uh, in the legal arena 25 years in private practice. I guess I'm kind of in private practice now. I'm uh, of counsel with a firm, and they've got a branch here in Idaho Falls. It's Parsons Bailey. What you do when you're of counsel is you show up every once in a while, and people say, who in the heck is that guy? And uh, I get a free parking space, which in Boise downtown is really valuable. That's the reason I signed up. <clears throat> so uh, I do a little of that um, and do work with refugees. I've turned into a serial do-gooder. But, uh, you know, I think you have to have a little bit on the ledger card when you get up to see St. Pete. And so I'm trying to make up for all of my misspent earlier years. So anyway, I was in the government uh, on the Supreme Court for 12 years, in the AG's office for eight years. And I can tell you the government is not a bad thing. 
The government does a lot of good things. They don't do everything right. But the government is you. And, you know, if you're unhappy with the government, what you need to do is change it. And how do you do that? Well, a little bit of public participation and public involvement. Um, Don Burnett, who many of you know, always tells the story of Benjamin Franklin when he walks out of the Constitutional Convention uh, back in 1787, and some lady asked him, what have you given us, Mr. Franklin, a republic or a monarchy? And his words were, a republic, if you can keep it. Now, it's interesting that he were, used the word <clears throat> you. He didn't say, if we can keep it. And I think what he was driving at is that it was that lady's responsibility, as it is the responsibility of all of us, to take part in this government, to do our share. And you don't have to run for office. You don't have to have uh, an administrative job. You don't have to write columns for the newspaper. I can tell you if you don't charge for them, they are more likely to take them. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, everybody can do their part. You know, it really is kind of a, a good feeling to go to some of the government classes in the state. I went to the Oh, Lord, I think it was six government classes that uh, Cindy Wilson, who was a government teacher over in Boise, she was not thinking of running for state superintendent of public instruction, but I had met her at an award ceremony, and she was a wonderful person. She said, why don't you come and talk to my government classes? So I talked to six of them, six hours. And I can tell you there are brains in those kids, and they have the, you know, the spark of, of knowledge that was given to them by the teacher, and it caught fire, and they're thinking, and they ask questions on stuff that I never had any idea that the kids would be talking about. Net neutrality, climate change, uh, government incarceration policy. So, you know, that's a good sign that maybe the new generation coming up is going to be uh, a little bit more involved. Uh, some of them may not weigh in <clears throat> on public issues uh, as an elected official, but, uh, you know, we can write letters to the editor we can talk to our neighbors and talk about issues. I think that's important. Or we can inspire others. You know, maybe we don't have to do anything ourselves, but if we can inspire others to get involved, uh, I think it's really a good thing. Uh, you know, back in 1960, I was down laboring away in Pocatello for my first year of college. And I was going to be an engineer because my uncle had been an engineer and he'd gone to Afghanistan to work on dams for Morrison Knudsen. 
And I thought, that sounds really exciting. That's what I'm going to do. And then they had this class called Engineering Drawing, where you're over a drawing board, and they had compasses and slide rules and all that stuff. And I thought, my god. <clears throat> they do this. And uh, there was a new president being sworn in. And uh, he gave his uh, address to the nation. And he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And it was a, like a bolt of lightning. I thought, my God, I'm going to do that. I started looking at things to do, the Peace Corps, uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I was a Republican, but that sounded interesting. Go down south and help people with voting rights. Uh, and then I saw that uh, each of the people who had run for president had something in common. They were lawyers. <clears throat> they had served in a war. And they'd gotten involved in politics. I said, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a United States senator. And I decided in 1961, that's where I'm headed. <clears throat> so I did all that. Got my law degree. Uh, went to Vietnam, volunteered for it. I had to ask twice. Um, but uh, then worked for Senator Jordan back in Washington for three years. And it was all because I was hooked by President Kennedy's inaugural address. Uh, <clears throat> we don't have, uh, you know, a large number, I would say, of people who can inspire at that level. Ronald Reagan was one of them. Uh, something that I've used recently in a column, and I think it's uh, a wonderful, inspiring, uh, thing that uh, Ronald Reagan said, and it's this. It was in his farewell address in 1989. <clears throat> he said, in my mind, uh, the city, the shining city on the hill that he talked about, he says, in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace a peace with free forts that hummed with commerce and creativity. If there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get there, or to get here. And I thought, isn't that a wonderful comment? Have some walls that have doors that people can come in, people who are from war-torn countries who want to come to this country to get freedom, who have that uh, pioneer spirit. You know, pioneer spirit is what drove people to this country. And those people fleeing from war and having that pioneer spirit to go overseas and start in a new country, those are the kind of people we need because those are the kind of people that built this country. So I thought that was really inspiring, too. So you don't have to be president to inspire people. I was looking at uh, a very recent example. Um, there was a high school teacher in Sandpoint who had what appeared to be a fairly bright student. 
might have needed a little bit of guidance. Uh, the student's name was Luke Mayfield. And Luke uh, was inspired to go into politics. He went back to Columbia to teach political science. But some of his friends at home were telling him about this uh, uh, school bond levy that had failed in Sandpoint, failed two to one. And so he thought, well, maybe uh, I could team up with my friends to do something about it. And so they went out, and, and he came back to work on this campaign to turn that around. And they knocked on doors, and they talked to people, and they got stuff in the press up there in the Sandpoint Daily Bee. And lo and behold, when the school levy came back, it passed two to one. And uh, he saw that public involvement and participation worked. And so he was reading about how Idaho didn't have any coverage for the people in the Medicaid gap. So he thought, well, by golly, it worked on the school levy. Let's give it a try on Medicaid expansion. And he and his friends from Sandpoint were the people that ramrodded that effort. And lo and behold, they got 60% of the people of the state of Idaho to agree with them. And now it's being uh, talked about over in the legislature. The governor's on board. They're talking about, uh, you know, some of them want to sandbag it. Some of them want to amend it. But he got the spark going and it was successful. And a high school teacher, I mean, he may have done it anyway, but he was given that spark by his high school teacher. So we can inspire people. I think I may have, I'm not an inspiring person to tell you, I can't make a speech like uh, some of these uh, highfalutin politicians, but I've had people tell me over the years, well, you know, you brought this idea to my uh, attention about public service, and so I went into law, and I went to the AG's office, and, and it's kind of, uh, kind of a good feeling. And I suspect that since four or three of the primary or uh, previous recipients of this award, the John Hansen Award, have been teachers, uh, they know how important they are in that process. Um, so, we can participate, we can inspire, and what do you do before you start in, uh, participating, you learn. <clears throat> you know, back in the day, everybody got the daily paper, and it had all the stuff in there, and everybody trusted what was in the paper, and when you went out to talk about public issues, you pretty much had the scoop because, you know, they fact-check stuff before they write it. If it's something controversial, they want to have at least two sources before they print it in the paper, usually. It doesn't always happen. But nowadays, we've got all of this information coming at us uh, on a daily basis. You know, you wake up in the morning and you turn on uh, one of those morning shows or you... Uh, click on your, your uh, uh, computer and look at one of these uh, newspaper websites, and there's just all of this stuff happening. And sometimes you take it with a grain of salt, and sometimes you take it hook, line, and sinker. It's really hard to know what the true facts are. 
And, um, you know, I, I can't claim that I'm a paragon of virtue when it comes to writing about true facts, but I always look at a number of sources before I stick my foot in my mouth. And, you know, generally I don't make a mistake. Um, I did send out a column, I'm thinking it might be in your paper, <clears throat> in the next day or two, about um, a fellow who is uh, coming to Boise this weekend. His name is Sharam Hadian. He's a former Muslim, and his job in today's world is to go out and talk to groups and spread hatred against Muslims. Well, I was <clears throat> writing about how he had derailed Idaho's child support collection system in 2015 by claiming that if uh, the law was passed so that we could collect uh, child support beyond our borders, that somehow that would allow the infiltration of Sharia religious law into the courts of Idaho. I mean, that's just a little bit of a stretch, I would say. But anyway, uh, I was uh, saying how uh, he almost caused our state to lose $16 million in uh, revenue from the federal government for our child support system. So I was driving over here and I stopped at the Bliss uh, rest stop and got out and just checked my phone to see what was going on. And the editor at the, at the uh, Moscow paper had sent me an email and said, did you mean 16 million? I said, what? So I looked at my column and it said $16. <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> so I got over here and I thought, you know, I had one mistake in there. I probably better check this thing again. And I'd talked about how, you know, back in 1928, people had uh, raised uh, false arguments against Al Smith because if they voted for him, who was a Catholic, the Pope would be running the country. So I looked at, you know, everything was right, and then I saw 1918. Al Smith didn't run for president in 1918 and lose, it was 1928. So I had to follow up with the second embarrassing uh, email to the editors of all the daily papers to say that was another mistake. But, and, and then I corrected the column and sent it again. And the same guy from Moscow said, you forgot to attach your new... <laughs> okay, I'm not perfect. But at least I do check from time to time. But, uh, you know, one thing I've found, if you can deal with the truth, it helps when you're trying to convince people. If you can keep from vilifying the other party or the person who is, uh, you know, promoting the issue that you think that they are dead wrong on, if you attack them personally, everybody is you know, who's on the other side is going to quit reading. And, you know, we have not been able to accommodate our brains 
to the new technology. Because when you see something on Facebook that gets you mad, what's your immediate response? You want to get back on there and say, you're an idiot. And that doesn't help the discussion. John Hansen wouldn't have done that. You know, you have to look at the issue and not the person that's promoting it. You don't attack them. You hit it on the issue, and you try to tell them that, you know, we have shared common values, and my view of the issue is going to serve those values better than your view of the issue. And quite frankly, I grew up in, you know, I was a Republican all of my life. I'm kind of an independent now. I don't know if you've noticed that in my columns, but um, I grew up at a time when Russians were not our friends. I grew up at a time when both parties should be concerned about uh, deficit spending. I grew up at a time when there were other issues. Um, you know, Republicans have tr had traditionally been favorable to immigration from other countries uh, because a lot of those people that come in, like everybody in my family down in the Magic Valley, hired people to do the work on their farms, whether they had papers or not. I hate to tell you that, but that's the way it was. You know, the dairy industry, which contributes about $8, million, $8 billion a year, both from the milk products and the cheese and the yogurt and everything else, $8 billion a year comes to Idaho from that industry, which could not su survive without the work of people, 60% of whom do not have proper documents. We need to address those kinds of problems because uh, our economy depends on it. And I think if you can phrase your response to some of the issues that get brought up that you disagree with in the context of where your party used to be, a lot of times you can become uh, more successful in uh, getting somebody to look at your viewpoint. But if you vilify, if you criticize the person who's raising it, it just won't work. I think we have to tell people, like Lyndon Johnson did, Lyndon Johnson was not always the most uh, uh, discreet person. Uh, he did not have a great deal of finesse, but, you know, he got right down to it. And one of my favorite quotes is this. Don't spit in the soup because we all have to eat from it. <clears throat> it's a nice way, of, well, maybe not a <laughs> particularly uncrude way of saying we're all in the same boat. We're all Americans. We're all Idahoans. Let's try to work together. And if we can do that and talk in a civil manner and take part in our society and try to do better, uh, not just at the national level, but at the local level, the state level, I think we will do what uh, Ben Franklin was hoping that we would do, and that is to keep the republic. It's going to take some hard work. I think we've had some rough times, but I think we can get out of them. So anyway, that's my message today. I understand I need to 
stick around to ask a, answer a few questions, I'd be glad to do it. I have nothing to lose anymore. I can speak my mind. Thank you, Jim. Uh, you don't get to ask the questions now. We ask the questions. That's the way this works. You've been here before. You know how this, how this goes. Uh, I want to add my own uh, congratulations to you for having received this distinguished award. Uh, it is distinguished, and no one could distinguish the award more than you will distinguish it henceforth. And uh, we welcome you to the City Club and uh, welcomed hearing from you. I think there's many, many words of wisdom which you have chosen to share with us. I think perhaps there's one that I will long remember, and that is not to spit in the soup. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we will all do our best to take away uh, the best of what you've shared with us because your life is an example of uh, participation, of civility, of action from within those many rights that we all enjoy to uh, bring to you and your family and your nation and your state uh, the best of everything. And so uh, it's a privilege for us to have you here today, an honor for me, having known you for many years and having known John Hanson well as also, uh, no one could exemplify the qualities that we hope to honor here today any better than you do, Jim. So again, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Tim. I really do appreciate it. Jim, we've rounded up a bunch of questions for you. <clears throat> and uh, since you have uh, chosen to uh, share with us uh, your views on a wide variety of subjects. We have questions that touch on a wide variety of subjects, not all of them having to do with a matter of civility, but some of them do, and uh, all of them uh, I will make an effort to present in a civil manner so that you can respond uh, in an appropriate way. But first of all, I think a general question that uh, uh, represents uh, a view perhaps of many of the people here in the audience this afternoon is as follows. At a time when our most visible leader is the very definition of uncivil, how do we show that civility is important? Incivility seems to be the way to win, and no one is willing to hold leaders accountable for incivility, or anything else. How do we prevail against this? You know, <clears throat> we too often in this news cycle when everything is instantaneous, um, hope that we can make a difference in the short term. But I think when you have uh, claims that uh, our media 
uh, are spewing false facts and um, people have so much coming at them from every angle uh, it's hard to discern what's true and what's not. I think what people have to do is take a book from a uh, page from Franklin's book and just keep at it, you know. I like to think that uh, some of my opinion pieces, uh, which, uh, you know, talk about the value of truth and uh, civil discourse, uh, may have some impact on some people, but I'm just one person. And I think all of us have a stake in it. And not saying you have to have a political philosophy one way or the other, but I think we can all uh, add our voices to the uh, chorus saying that we value truth-telling, we value honesty in government, you know, I, I often hearken to my dad who uh, had, you know, a large cattle feeding operation down in the Magic Valley. He dealt with people on a one-to-one -one basis. They never had wit written contracts. They always dealt on their words. If the price went up, you stuck with your deal. If the price went down, you stuck with your deal. And I think that there is a feeling out there among the general public across the country that that's the right thing to do. And I think if people speak up and say that is the right thing to do, let's get back to those days. Let's get back to the days where you worked in the legislature across the aisle, both at the state level, when John Hansen and Orville Hansen were in the state legislature, and on the national level. And uh, I think if you just keep at it, it's going to take hard work and persistence. But I think in the long run, the truth will out. And that pendulum will swing back and we'll be back to those days. So don't lose hope. I think just keep at it and, uh, you know, reward those who tell the truth and don't reward those who don't. Such good counsel. Such good counsel, Jim. We'll accept that optimistic message. <laughs> Nonetheless, there is today, and uh, as a follow-on from a portion of the previous question, this particular member of your audience has a somewhat more specific question. There's been much talk of the possible impeachment of our President Donald Trump. The Constitution would require proof of his commission of high crimes and or misdemeanors. What is your opinion or of what constitute high crimes and misdemeanors? You know, the, um, the constitutional framers were not particularly uh, pinpointing what that was. And there's a wide range of uh, opinions on what it is. I think if there was uh, something that was shown to be detrimental to the national security interests of our country, maybe not rising to the level of treason, 
but uh, clearly harming our national interests in some regard, I think that would qualify. If there was uh, a showing that uh, the chief executive or some of his uh, close associates had used uh, government uh, uh, apparatus for private gain, I think that would fit within that uh, category of high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, so there, there are a number of things that I think might fit that if there was a serious effort to uh, derail or uh, interfere with an investigation of uh, high-ranking individuals, that might fit. I think what we have to do, though, is to see what comes of the investigation by Robert Mueller. Uh, he seems to be a person of high integrity, of high ideals, of unimpeachable uh, qualifications, and uh, see what he says. Now, he will not recommend uh, impeachment, but I think we have to take a close look at what he finds. I hope that that information is made public. And I think that the Congress, both houses of Congress, have to look at it carefully and hold public hearings to try to flesh out any issues that might still be in question. So I don't know if that's uh, a definitive answer, but I don't know that there's any definitive answer that can be given. The definitive answer may be that it's a judgment uh, that the Congress will have to come to. And you're urging them to be deliberate in that process, uh, but at the same time, you're urging them to consider factors that uh, you believe are important uh, that the nation believes are important, and uh, those considerations we are leaving to them with the hope that uh, justice, uh, should it be done in this particular way, will in fact be done. So thank you for that. You have uh, lamented, really, that uh, the Republican Party of today is not the same Republican Party that you grew up with. And this particular person is interested in how do you believe it's different specifically, and how do you think, if it can be, saved? Well, you know, not everybody in the Republican Party nowadays <clears throat> uh, thinks that Russia is a very dangerous adversary, but a lot do. That was not the case when I was growing up. You know, the Republicans <clears throat> took the position that the Soviet Union was our most serious and dangerous adversary in the world. They've changed their government, but it's still a very dangerous government. They have nuclear weapons. Uh, the leader of that country is always rattling his sabers. He's talking about sending intermediate range ballistic missiles into Europe. Uh, he's 
claiming that he's got uh, hypersonic weapons, which is a bunch of baloney, that can hit the U.S. He's not our friend. He's trying to destabilize our relationships with NATO and in the Far East. Um, the Republicans used to be the vanguard against Russian aggression, and it bothers me greatly uh, that they are not lockstep uh, opposed to the Russians uh, presently. Um, I think that uh, the Republican Party went off of the rails in 2002 invading Iraq, invading Iraq. Absolutely no reason for it in my book. It was a tremendous foreign policy disaster. And yet once we were there, uh, you know, and the situation started falling apart, we didn't bring that Republican know-how in how to put a government back together. Um, you can read my views in my book <laughs> to go in more detail, but I think it was a disaster. We upset the apple cart in the, in the Middle East, which led uh, largely to the uh, fiasco in Syria. The people who uh, went to Abu Ghraib prison uh, and then got out, you know, the, the Saddam Hussein uh, acolytes were the ones that set up ISIS and created such havoc in, in Iraq and Syria. And so, you know, we had all these cascading problems. So we hire, well, we don't hire, but we finally get these people, the Kurds who helped us out in Syria. And uh, we promised we'll help you with your problems if you help us with our problems. And so they lead the effort to get rid of ISIS in Syria. And now, on the spur of the moment, we're going to dump them. And, uh, you know, it's not entirely Republicans who are saying that, but because uh, a lot of Republicans are concerned about that, too. I think the Republicans ought to be united, both in the administration and the Congress, saying, you helped us. Now we're going to help you and help stabilize the area. And to bring in a lot of those people who stuck their necks out in Iraq and Afghanistan to help us to bring them to this country to safety because a lot of them are still in danger. And how do I come to that view? I worked with South Vietnamese soldiers in South Vietnam. A lot of them were Catholics. These people had been persecuted up north, and when the country was partitioned in 1954, they moved south. The people that I worked with were Catholic soldiers from a village that had picked up in North Vietnam and moved the whole dang village down south under Father Zhu. And they were our brothers, and we left them in the lurch. And it pains me to this day. And we have 100,000 Iraqis who stuck their necks out. 
and we're going to let them be picked off one and one after the other because we won't let them into the country. And th these people are vouched for by U.S. soldiers who said, these people were helpful to me. They saved our lives. Same in Afghanistan, about 20 or so thousand who are waiting to come over to this country because they thought that we would help them if they helped us. And I think that the Republicans should be united in saying, by gosh, we're going to stand by our allies. We stand by the people that helped us. We don't turn our backs on them. So those are a few things. Can the party be saved? Pardon? Can the party be saved? Oh, it'll, it'll get saved. There, there will be, a, you know, a change of the pendulum. It'll swing back. The GOP, in my book, will be the GOP that John Hansen was a member of, that Orville Hansen was a member of, that uh, <clears throat> my friend, your former opponent, Wayne Kidwell, uh, Wayne and I actually meet fairly often. I took his position on the court. He was a Republican attorney general. He almost ran as a uh, Republican for governor, but uh, had an unfortunate happening in his family. He ran for Congress as a Republican. He thinks our party has changed. So I, I think it's going to come back. These things happen. Justice Jones refers to Wayne Kidwell as my friend. Uh, he didn't mention that piece of history that will be lost even to footnotes, I think, that I once ran against Wayne Kidwell for Attorney General, unsuccessfully, by the way. And as a matter of fact, I supported Tim. And when I was the Republican County Chair for Jerome County, and Tim couldn't make a meeting, and so I was asked to speak on his behalf, and, and Wayne was unhappy with that at our meeting. But we've made it up. He's a good guy. He is a good guy. Well, this question, uh, Jim, follows from what you have just said. And uh, logical that it follow as the next question for you. Uh, your opinions have made it clear that uh, you don't agree with the president's decision to remove our armed forces from uh, the Middle East. What should our policy be there? I think our policy should be in Iraq to, you know, it's finally getting stabilized. Our, our policy should be to help train the forces up. We've done it before, but I think now we have a more friendly government. Uh, they're kind of beholden to Iran also, and they've got problems. Uh, the Shiites have a split amongst themselves uh, at the present time. The guy that hated us, Moqtada al-Sadr, is kind of, sort of, maybe on our side, or at least he's not so much in the Iranian pocket as some of them are. So I think that we need to keep a presence there. I think we need to keep a presence in Syria to keep that situation from turning really ugly. I'm just deathly afraid that the Kurds are going to be massacred by the Turks if we step away. And the only people who will benefit will be the Russians, the uh, murderous Assad regime, the Turks, and the Islamic State terrorists. 
you know, when those four are on the other side, maybe we better have a presence there because the Turks have really been good and they've been helpful and they've been establishing one of the most enlightened societies in the Middle East. So let's continue to give them a little help. Afghanistan, I don't know if that can be saved. I'm really disappointed in how that happened. I think when we shifted force, forces from Afghanistan, which we had moving in the right direction, people were sick and tired of the Taliban. Uh, they were tired of being beheaded and having their friends uh, brutalized. But then we shifted our focus to Iraq and things went to heck in a handbasket and I don't know if it can be saved. I, I think we can still continue to try to help them, but it is a disaster. And I'm not sure anybody has the answer on how it's going to be resolved. This moves to a more uh, domestic subject uh, and one on which you have shared opinions uh, with the public who is interested in your uh, very well-written uh, opinion pieces that appear in the Post Register and elsewhere in Idaho. What can be done to halt the epidemic of gun violence in this country? The epidemic of gun violence. <clears throat> I've been stockpiling information, <laughs> but um, I haven't gotten around to gun violence. Number one, um, I think that there has to be uh, more emphasis on training people uh, about guns. I would not be opposed to some kind of gun lock uh, on guns. And uh, I haven't uh, delved into this yet uh, in any of my columns, but there will be a column at some point saying that uh, high-velocity AR-15s and uh, uh, weapons of war should not be sold uh, to the public. And let me tell you what uh, I know about uh, the uh, caliber 223. It was designed by people to kill. It was designed that when that bullet hit, it would liquefy your insides, even if it wasn't a deadly shot. We had a lot of stuff like that in the artillery. We had the flechette, the beehive round. It was filled with little steel darts. They looked like miniature arrows about an inch and a half long. They were designed to be shot in a 105 shell or a 155 shell at direct fire, directly at the enemy when they were charging at you. Uh, when I was at the uh, military museum, I think it was in uh, Saigon, they said that it was a war crime to use the beehive round on them because what happened is when one of those darts hit you it tumbled around and scrambled up your insides so that if it didn't kill you you were off of the battlefield. I think the AR-15s that we have today are the same kind of weapons. I don't believe they have any application in civilian use 
perhaps at a controlled gun range, maybe that would be a place for them. But I don't say confiscate them, but I say quit selling them. And there are a lot of other little nips and tucks uh, uh, have people with private gun sales and uh, these things that pop up here and there uh, go through the national data bank. So <clears throat> it's a good way to make uh, enemies in the state, but uh, that's my feeling on it. So. Jim, you've touched on immigration. Uh, I know it's a subject that was close to your heart, clearly still is close to your heart, uh, since your experience in Vietnam. This question is very simple. Is the wall the solution to our immigration problems? Well, I can give you the short answer, which is no. <clears throat> Or I can give you the long answer, which is it's not the kind of uh, answer that is going to solve any existing problem. You know, most of the places that are a problem with people crossing uh, the border already have some kind of a fence or barrier of some sort. There are some places where you can uh, do some additional fencing. Uh, you know, that's fair game. If you're talking about drugs, the drugs come through the ports of entry. The wall ain't going to help that. And quite frankly, after they invented ladders and tunnels, walls became less effective. You know, I was... My, my wife and I went to China, and we saw this 1,500-mile wall. Didn't work too well. Uh, but it's really kind of a nice tourist attraction. You know, you can go up there and, and get some nice pictures, but that's, that's what a wall does. My solution to the problem, and we do have, we, we have more people going back to Mexico than are coming from Mexico because the economy has been better developed in Mexico and it's keeping the Mexicans at home. So why don't we do that in Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador? Give them some development aid. Make sure it doesn't go into the pockets of the corrupt leaders, but that it gets put into development plans that are rational and reasonable. Help people grow fish in uh, private fish farms. Help them uh, grow coffee in different regions. You know, we're getting to the point where climate change is going to make it impossible for coffee to be grown in certain areas. Maybe you can do it there. But give them some development aid and give them the tools that they need to put the clamp on the drug uh, lords in those countries and the drug gangs. And I would think that if you had a more robust program of helping with the development of the Central American countries, you could see the same kind of changes we've seen with regard to Mexico. And, uh, you know, I think that would 
be a better answer to the problem than some structure which ain't going to have much effect. Here are a couple of questions that come to you as a distinguished jurist and a lawyer uh, having to do with our Constitution. In anticipation of the 2020 census, our legislature continues to consider amending our state constitution, which provides for a redistricting commission. Those proposed amendments would add a seventh member to that commission, allowing for decisions to be made by a majority vote. What are your comments about those proposals? When I came into office, as AG, one of the things that was awaiting me was the defense of a kind of crazy reapportionment plan that had been dreamed up by a guy, a nice guy, who was a political science professor up at the College of North Idaho. And Tony Stewart up there had drafted up this plan for floaterial districts, you know, these great big huge districts and then some multi-member districts. One of the problems was that the city of Idaho Falls was treated very, very poorly in that reapportionment plan. And I came over and made speeches about how, how uh, devastating it would be to the representation from this area. Well, uh, it was a terrible plan. It was put into effect. The Republicans thought it was going to be the death knell of the party. The Democrats were overjoyed. They'd brought the suit that resulted in the plan. They thought it was going to be a bonanza. And um, I got lots of advice from Jim Resch, who was presently, I think he was the president pro tem of the Senate uh, <clears throat> back then. Uh, wailing about this horrible plan that was going to devastate the Republican Party. Well, it went into effect and everybody was a little bit surprised because it helped the Republicans and it uh, hurt the Democrats. These things have a way of turning out differently than you had hoped. So when you get a person uh, who wants to have an amendment to the plan that we fixed up to take care of the problem. I've got to look at the sign back here. It says, go Trump. Oh, okay. So we have a difference of opinion within the audience, I, I which is it was what we encourage at I City it, Club. So. I thought it was saying, time to hang it up. <laughs> <laughs> I thought my time had run over. No, you're close. You're close. But anyway, um, these, you know, what goes around comes around. You know, you assume that the situation is going to be the same. But I remember a time when the Democrats were in control of the legislature and the offices of state government. And uh, so you get this plan that the majority party can... Uh, reapportionment, re reapportion as it wishes, uh, and lo and behold, what would happen if you had a change of parties? That wouldn't work out too well. I think when you gerrymander, whether you're 
the Democrats or whether you're the Republicans, you're diluting some people's vote and you ought to knock it off. Uh, the Reapportionment Commission, I think, did a credible job in 1990. They had a couple of plans that were knocked down by the court, but uh, they did a credible job. I think they did, uh, that was in 2000, they did it again in 2010. I thought they came up with a good plan. You know, if you know some of the legislators who were involved, former uh, Republican legislator Dolores Crow and former Democrat legislator Ron Beitelspacher, you know, and those were both partisan people. They came up with a plan that I thought did a pretty good job. I couldn't convince my friends on the court that that was the case, and so they came up with a plan that was dreamed up by somebody else, and it wasn't nearly as good, and it got, got rid of some good legislators, and I don't think it was constitutionally necessary, but they did a good job, I thought, and it should have been upheld. Um, it's a way of getting politics out of the reapportionment process. I think everybody is entitled to have their vote count equally with the other party. And when you draw up districts where that doesn't happen, whether you're on one party or the other party, it's wrong. And a lot of states have seen that. I think uh, the trend is to go to the uh, nonpartisan uh, system. So I think we ought to keep our system that we've got. I think it's worked well. Um, we don't have as many problems as the bigger states where they have larger populations and more chances to do mischief, but I think it's a good system. It ain't broke. We don't need to fix it. Thank you, Jim. We are really just about out of time, but one final question that will give you an opportunity to uh, perhaps end our whole uh, luncheon here on an optimistic note. This, this person in your audience is interested as follows. As you scan the horizon, what uh, do you see as the best and the most concerning aspect of Idaho's future? Well, you know, I never had anything <clears throat> against uh, Butch Otter. I mean, the first time I ran for Congress, Butch was running for governor. And uh, we appeared at a lot of things together. I remember when Butch and uh, Alan Larson were uh, debating the interpretation of uh, LDS theology up in Blackfoot. Whether you could legislate morality or not, I thought Butch probably should have not done that. <laughs> but I think, you know, Butch has probably done all right. I think he was a little bit too inclined to have his buddies uh, you know, weigh in on politics. I recall the Syringa uh, case in which uh, they sort of ignored the rules of 
of uh, government contracting to give the public school uh, uh, computer system to the uh, CenturyLink folks, or Quest, I guess it was back then. I think that, uh, you know, Brad Little is going to be a, a breath of fresh air in the legislature. He was just quoted uh, in uh, today's Boise paper talking about he wasn't too keen on having too many changes in Medicaid, in the Medicaid expansion. Uh, he's talked about expanding rights of the gay community as long as uh, he sees some safeguards in there uh, for religious uh, folks. Um, he supported uh, a fairly substantial increase in education funding. Wasn't as much as I would have uh, preferred, but uh, and and I I worked on a committee with a guy he hired as his lawyer, and he said, you know, Brad is convinced that he needs to have people here who are really qualified to do their jobs. Not saying that some of Butch's people weren't, but um, I, think, I think that uh, we're going to see some stuff out of Brad that uh, uh, we can be happy about. Well, that's a pretty optimistic report. I hate to interrupt you, but I do know that we're past our uh, witching hour, if you will, and, uh, and the radio broadcast that will rebroadcast this next week has a limitation on it. So I want to congratulate you again, Jim, for your receiving the John Hansen Award. Uh, you have certainly uh, made us proud to have you as a recipient of that award, and thank you very much for being here. Well, thank you, Tim, and thanks to the City Club. You're such a wonderful group, and I always enjoy being over here. Thank you for this wonderful honor, and I'll always keep you in my heart. Thank you for joining us for this City Club of Idaho Falls broadcast. All past forums are available anytime by visiting ifcityclub.com, click on Events and Archives. All upcoming City Club forums are posted at ifcityclub.com. This is KISU Pocatello, Idaho Falls, Rexburg, with Matt's Movie Tracks coming up next. <laughs>